are in Genesis 49, 50 chapters in the book of Genesis. And so chapter 49 and 50 tonight, although we won't finish all of it, I'm gonna save a little bit for Sunday morning, but that should tell you we're two teachings away from finishing this book of beginnings and, and what a remarkable book it truly is, as is all of Scripture. So you can open up your Bibles, Genesis 49. We'll pick it up in verse one. I was talking with my wife today, Cheryl, and I shared something with her that just kind of hit me earlier today, somewhat mind-blowing. And it's the very idea that if Jesus were to come today, actually what I, what I said to her was I was thinking about you know, how, how long it's gonna take us to teach through the Bible again and and what, what would it be like? Should the Lord wait? Should he give us the time? What will it be like in 10 years? And then immediately, immediately the thought came to me, wow, if Jesus came today in 10 years, we'll be three years into the kingdom. Isn't that, I mean, just like, <laughs> understand that from the very beginning, God has been leading us to the kingdom. From the outset, that all of the exercise of history has been here to lead us to him by faith, learning to speak the language of faith, to follow after him and to trust in him, to bring us into his kingdom. That has been the point all along. To the glory of God the Father and, and resulting in the salvation of people who will trust in him, but you think about Israel leaving Egypt, and we're about to get there. Lord willing, we'll be in the book of Exodus. And as we talk about the Exodus, the whole idea of leaving Egypt and going through the wilderness for 40 years, why? What was that whole journey about? To get them to a point of trust that they could enter the promised land. And that has been the history of the world, my friends. And to be here in this season at this time, part of what I know the Lord is doing is calling us out to recognize the end is indeed near. Not just words from a sermon, not just discussion in a small group or a thought that might pop into the head, but the reality before us that we truly are, as old Jacob says, in the end of days. Genesis 49, verse one, Jacob summoned his sons and said, assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come, or as we talked about Sunday, the aharit yamim, the end of days. Jacob was an end times prophet. Who knew? <laughs> he waited until this point in his life to spring this prophecy on us, stunning and remarkable in its scope. Genesis 49 is a panoramic prophecy. We'll get to that. But before we do, I need to back up just a bit because on Sunday I said there were 14 uses of this phrase, end of days, in the Hebrew scriptures. 14 uses. And I began to list them out, beginning with Jacob right here, Genesis 49, verse one. That's the first time we hear end of days, acharit yamim. And then we hear it again in Numbers 24, 14, Deuteronomy 4, 30, Deuteronomy 31, 29, Isaiah chapter two, verse two, Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 20, chapter 30, verse 24, chapter 48, verse 47, chapter 49, verse 39, Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 16, 
Hosea chapter three, verse five, and Micah chapter four, verse one. And if you were counting along, you would know that's 12. And Sunday I said there were 14. I had just finished, walked off the stage, and my daughter Hannah said, Dad, you only gave us 12. But you said there were 14. Indeed I did. I left out to, I was really just trying to see who's paying attention. Here are the two I left out. Unintentionally, but here they are tonight. Both from a kind of obscure end times prophet, Daniel. Daniel chapter two, verse 28, Daniel said to King Nebuchadnezzar, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the end of days, in the latter days, acharit yamim. Or Daniel chapter 10, verse 14, where the angel Gabriel sent to Daniel, says, now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people, that would be Israel, in the end of days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. And Gabriel begins to open up this remarkable prophecy, end times prophecy, that that Gabriel will tell Daniel, seal it up, seal up the book of prophecy. This is not for now, it's for the end. Well, guess what? The revelation has come and the book of Revelation unseals the prophecies of Daniel so that we now can understand what it was that Gabriel told Daniel would happen in the end of days. And that is where I believe we reside. Here at the end of the end of days. But among all of these prophets, these 14 end of days statements in the Hebrew scriptures, Jacob was the first to be specific using that phrase, the latter days, the end of days, because again, Jacob was an end times prophet. But until just before he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last, who knew his last words to the sons of Israel would be a panoramic prophecy of the end of days. I hope you're ready for this. Verse two. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. And Jacob begins with what we would call a beautiful example of Hebrew parallelism. Now, if you don't know what parallelism is, let me give you Merriam-Webster's definition. It's repeated syntactical similarities given for rhetorical effect. <laughs> parallelism. What it means is, is a, a sentence repeated a, another way, but repeated a second time for effect, to, to give impact. Jacob says here, note this in verse two, hear, O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel your father. Hear, listen, sons of Jacob, to Israel your father. And so it's parallelism as it's worked out here. And immediately we can know this, we can recognize that these prophecies about to be told are not the vague ramblings of a foggy old timer. It's not a man about to die who's ruminating of the things of the past and saying irrelevant or meaningless things. No, Jacob is about to give the most pointed teaching of his life. And he is sharp as a tack. And before we're done tonight, you will see old Jacob draw his feet up into the bed and breathe his last. These are his last words, literally. And they are stunning. Stunning. 
Hear, he says, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. And both the word hear and the word listen as translated in the English are the same Hebrew word, shimu, which is from the root word shema. Now, if you know your Hebrew or if you're just a, a learned Bible student, you've heard that word before, Shema. The Jewish people call it the Shema. It's Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four. Hear, O Israel, Shema, O Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And of course, in Revelation chapter two and three, seven times, Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear. Oh, Shema, what the Spirit says to the churches. But note this, in the translation of that word Shema, it's not just to hear as in hearing a sound. It is to hear, comprehend, and obey. It's hearing with action. It's listening with the intention to act in submission, which is why the Shema is so significant. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Hear and act on what you hear. Listen, O sons of Jacob, Shema to Israel, your father. And what Jacob now does is present the future of each tribe, each one of his sons becoming the 12 tribes of Israel prophetically. And it's fascinating because the prophetic future for each tribe results from the nature of each son immediately. That is what is going to befall the tribe way down the line has a direct correlation to the nature and character of each one of these 12 sons. And Jacob is gonna call that out. What I'm saying is, and don't miss this, their current traits and personalities and behaviors, good or bad, are passed along. Generation to generation to generation, all the way to the end of days. Man, that ought to make you sit up and take notice. Parents, kids, those of you just out of the house perhaps for the first time may ask the question, are children bound to act and behave just like mom and dad? Am I destined to do exactly as my parents did to repeat the nature and the character, the, the sins of my father and my father's? Is this predestined, locked in? Am I, I stuck with this? My answer to you would be you are not bound, but you are certainly pulled. Not forced, but it is certainly forceful. You don't have to be like your parents, but the influence of previous generations is deep and runs deep. And so we can see and understand Yet again, a passage we've seen so many times, we're about to come to in Exodus, when God describes himself to Moses, he does so this way. Exodus 34, verse six. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness or grace and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, and the implication is thousands of generations, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet, 
he will by no means leave unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. What does that mean? It means he visits generation after generation, bringing his perfect nature to bear to see are we following in the sins of the Father or are we learning from the righteousness of the Father? Are are we following in the behaviors negative and, and corrupt or are we growing in righteousness toward the Lord? Are we repentant and desiring to be Christ followers? What's marvelous is Lamentations 3.22 says, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease for his compassions never fail. And some of you need to hear this tonight. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You may have followed down the same path of a parent, of a grandparent, of a family line. There may be something that goes back decades, generations, and you find yourself in the same sick mess, but the Lord's grace is new every morning, and he comes to you, and he comes to me tonight to say you do not have to behave as they did, except that perhaps they behaved as followers of Christ. Now, there's something to be passed along. There's something worth emulating as we will see in the sons of Jacob. Now, another thing to note before I get into these prophetic words of each of the 12 sons is that after the first four sons, so we'll note uh, Reuben and Shimon and Levi and Judah are mentioned for the first four, and they are the first four in the birth order. But curiously, after that, Jacob mixes it up to a degree. Now, he'll end with Benjamin, who truly was the last of the 12 born, But he alters the order of the sons. Why would he do that? He does it to serve the prophetic narrative. Because what we see here, like I said, it's a a panorama of biblical prophecy. There is a chronology, if you will, to what we will see occurring in Israel, running all the way up to the end of days. Jacob is saying something here that is bigger than his boys. And it's not just like the patriarchal blessing. He's already given that to Ephraim. And of the 12 sons, really only two of them are gonna get profound blessings. The rest are just going to be referred to and talked about, and they're gonna be pictures and types of what will befall all of Israel in the end of days. This is bigger than the boys. So with all that in mind, check this out, verse three. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. And this is typical firstborn terminology. You can check it through the scriptures. Might, strength, dignity, power, preeminence. My boy, my firstborn son. And positionally, Reuben was born first. But now, for the first time, since a very shameful act some 39 to 40 years earlier, Jacob is about to drop Reuben's punishment. Watch this verse four. Uncontrolled as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and then you defiled it 
he went up to my couch. Now, I don't even know if this was known among the brothers at this point. Can you imagine he says this? And around the room, they're shuffling their feet, and one goes, <gasps> he did what? Gross, Reuben. <laughs> you did what? You see, Jacob never forgot. Do you remember the story? Reuben slept with Bilhah, Jacob's concubine, one of his wives. And he did so, we don't know exactly why. What was the deal? Possibly as an act of overthrowing his father's authority. Because you see, in the Middle East of that time, in that age, this was done. You will see Absalom do the same thing with David's wives to show a power, an overthrow, a power play to seize the father's control of the family. Now, we don't know if that's what Reuben was thinking or what his intention was, but ultimately what happens here is he loses his preeminent position. Jacob gave it, as I said a moment ago, to Joseph's son, Ephraim. Ephraim now becomes, in the line, the firstborn. He's the one who has the birthright. He's the one who's given the blessing. And so Reuben, watch this, the man and the tribe lost what might have been. And if you track the history of Reuben, nothing much comes of this tribe after this. It fades in power, it fades in number, it's not much of a notable tribe. They even will take a pass on entering the promised land. They'll stay on the other side of the Jordan, not entering into the full offering of the promises of God, they'll make a request. Can we just stay over here and not go all the way with this? And that's Reuben. But here's where the prophecy begins to set in. Note this, Reuben indicates Israel's inception. Reuben indicates Israel's inception. At the beginning, think all the way back, Reuben has a picture now of all Israel at Mount Sinai as Israel played the harlot with the golden calf. As Reuben went into Bilhah, committing adultery and, and, and violating his own father's bed, so the children of Israel are all gathered around Mount Sinai. Moses is on the mount receiving the law of God, the love of God, the direction of God for his people, and they are down there playing the harlot with the golden calf. We'll come to that story in a few weeks. Very interesting to me, the firstborn of God, that generation of Israel having come out of Egypt, preeminent in might and strength and dignity and power, but what happened? Uncontrolled as water. By the way, that phrase, uncontrolled as water, is literally boiled over. Boiled over like water. Listen to another prophetic description of this. The book of Hosea, chapter two, picking up in verse one. Say to your brothers, Ami, which means my people, and to your sisters, Ruhamah, which means my people of compassion. Contend with your mother, contend. She is not my wife and I am not her husband. And let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, or I will strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born. I will make her like a wilderness. I will make her like desert land and slay her with thirst. Also, I will have no compassion on her children because they're the children of harlotry. 
For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. She will seek them, but she will not find them. And then she will say, I'll go back to my first husband. For it was better for me then than now. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in its season. I will also take away my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. And then I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers and no one will rescue her out of my hand. I will also put an end to all of her gaiety, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her festal assemblies. I will destroy her vines and fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field will devour them. I will punish her for the days of the Baals, when she used to offer sacrifices to them, and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry, and follow her lovers, so that she forgot me declares the Lord, and I believe this very season is a result of a world that has forgotten our God. But speaking again of, of Reuben prophetically, this is, this is Israel at inception. This is Israel's sin, Israel that was supposed to be a priestly nation, supposed to be preeminent, preeminent among all the nations, but lost that position in their harlotry. So Reuben indicates Israel's inception. Continue on, verse five. Shimon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let not my soul enter into their council. Let not my glory be united with their assembly because in their anger they slew men and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Note this, that word lamed is literally hocked. H-O-C-K-E-D, hocked, they hocked oxen, which means they cut the tendons. They didn't just kill oxen, they cut the tendons to make them lame so that they would be useless. It was, it was a, a brutish act. And you may remember the story at Shechem back in Genesis 34. Jacob certainly remembered Shechem. And what Shimon and Levi did by tricking the men in Shechem to being circumcised so that they could intermarry with with the sisters of Israel, uh, daughters of Israel, the sisters of Shimon and Levi. So they all got circumcised, and while they're weak from the circumcision, in come Shimon and Levi, and they slay every man in the town. It was a bloodbath. Jacob was incensed at the time, and he never forgot what they did, and there's something in the character of these two boys, of Shimon and Levi. And note the description that he gives the description involves violence, verse five, anger, verse six, and self-will. Self-will. Self-will in the Hebrew is retzonah, and it translates the strong desire to please the self. And I think self-will is at the root of anger and violence. Self-will is at the root of sin. Man, when I'm angry, it's typically because I'm not satisfied. 
I'm frustrated, I'm self-willed, I want it to go down my way, and it ticks me off when it doesn't. Anger ought to be a red alert for us, folks. You know, when I start to feel my blood boil, when I start to feel that frustration, that ought to be an alert in my mind to my spirit, man, time to cool down. Something is going selfish here. It is the self-will at work. It was the self-will of Shimon and Levi that wiped out the city of Shechem. And you know what? That is not the way of Jesus, who said, John 8, 28, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and I do nothing on my own initiative. But I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. You wanna learn how to gain control of the self-will? Seek the will of the Father. Seek to be pleasing to God. You see, Jesus also said in Matthew 20, verse 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. It's the complete opposite of self-will. It's God's will and others-centered. It's God-pleasing and seeking the good of others. It's loving God and loving people. What I'm saying here is that Christ-likeness is the antidote to self-will. As Paul wrote in Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, Christ-like. And that will subdue the self-will. And by the way, coincidentally, it'll take away the anger and the frustration and the impatience, and it'll bring you into a place of peace. Shimon and Levi, were angry, violent, self-willed boys. And so in verse seven, Jacob continues, cursed be their anger for it is fierce and their wrath for it is cruel. Watch this. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. You know what happened to Shimon and Levi? Jewish tradition says that all poor Jews come from Simeon or Shimon. All poor Jews come out of Shimon. Know what happened to Shimon? They got an inheritance, but it was pretty much consumed by the larger tribe of Judah. If you look on a Bible map, you'll see in the south of Israel, mighty Judah and a tiny little circle in the middle that is the land that was occupied by Shimon, Simeon. Joshua chapter 19, verse nine says, the inheritance of the sons of Simeon was taken from the portion of the sons of Judah. For the share of the sons of Judah was too large for them, so the sons of Shimon received an inheritance in the midst of Judah's inheritance. In other words, Shimon's land was swallowed up by Judah. Just as their father had said, I'm gonna disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. More than that, what happened to Levi? Levi was dispersed throughout the tribal territories, given 48 cities, but no land inheritance. They would be truly, literally dispersed throughout all of Israel. But there's a mighty working of God here because some of you might know, well, wait a minute. Levi got the priesthood. 
That's why they were in the 48 cities because they got the priesthood and as priests, they were dispersed throughout Israel and then of course in Jerusalem and they got to dwell near the tabernacle in the wilderness and the temple in Jerusalem. So good news for Levi, right? And why is it that way? Why does Levi get the priesthood while Shimon gets the poverty? That hardly seems fair. Well, the answer to that question actually will come up also in a few weeks when we get down to Exodus chapter 32. At that point, as Moses comes down Mount Sinai and the Reubenesque inception of Israel, that adulterous dance around the golden calf is taking place, and Moses comes down and he's furious with what he sees, and the Lord is furious with what takes place, and Moses says, who will stand on the side of the Lord? And Levi immediately gather to Moses. And because of that, they will become the priestly tribe. So that fuming self-will is exchanged at Mount Sinai by the tribe of Levi for a God-centered will. And so God blessed that. And while they are still scattered, dispersed throughout Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse nine says, Levi does not have a portion or an inheritance with his brothers. True that. But the Lord is his inheritance. Just as the Lord, your God, spoke to him. I like that. The Lord is the inheritance of the priest. And you are a royal priesthood. Your best inheritance, your only inheritance, it's the Lord. It's God himself. This is by an act of sheer grace. This is how God graced Levi, and it's how God gives grace to followers of Jesus that he becomes our inheritance. But what does this say prophetically of Israel? We already know that Reuben is a picture of Israel's inception, and so Shimon and Levi display Israel's dispersion, the diaspora. They are a picture of the dispersed ones, the scattered ones. 722 BC, when Assyria wiped out the northern kingdom. 586 BC, when Babylon took captive the southern kingdom of Judah. They would return after some 70 years, but then in 70 AD, you know the story, Rome wiped them out. By 110 AD, they were driven completely from the land except for little tiny pockets of Jews that always remained in the land. And so scattered and dispersed in what Jews today refer to as the diaspora, the dispersion among all the nations of the world. Shimon and Levi are are, our prophetic end of days picture of dispersed scattered Israel. And I think we can make an assumption a little further. We can say that Shimon is a picture of persecuted Israel or impoverished Israel. Levi, in the world, Levi is a picture of priestly Israel. What do you mean? I mean, think about the Jewish moral impact on this world. It's truly astounding. The values and the ethics of Torah law 
that the Jews lived out but would influence their reaction, their behavior among others and even what they would teach and what they would do. The idea of monotheism, the idea of a moral God who brings values and righteousness all affected the world as well. So while Shimon pictures an impoverished Israel scattered throughout the world, Levi pictures priestly Israel having a priestly impact on the world in terms of godly morals and values. And it has been profound. Verse eight, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. We'll spend very little time with Judah because we spent all of Sunday morning with him. But in our study on Sunday, we recognize that this first, this blessing of Judah, and truly it is a blessing, spoke first short-term prophetically of David and the rule of David and the line of Judah that would be the royal kingly line. But of course, prophetically, it is the king at the end of days with whom Jacob is most concerned. Psalm 132, verse 10, for the sake of David, your servant, do not turn away the face of your anointed. The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body, I will set forth upon your throne. And of course, he's talking about Messiah. Yeshua, Hamashiach, Jesus Christ. Verse nine continues, Judah is a lion's whelp or cub from the prey, my son. You have gone up, he couches, he lies down as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes or until whose right it is comes. And to him, the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are literally darker than wine and his teeth are literally whiter than milk. And what Judah speaks of here, if you're keeping track now, we see the inception of Israel with Reuben. We see the dispersion of Israel with Shimon and Levi. And now we see the salvation of Israel through Jesus Christ. Judah speaks of Israel's salvation. And we're tracking this through now. Keep this in word or in mind that salvation comes only from the lion of the tribe of Judah. I'll speak to that in just a moment again. Verse 13, Zebulun will dwell at the seashore. He shall be a haven for ships and his flank shall be toward Zidon. Huh, so Zebulun's a beach bum living in a Volkswagen van down by the seashore. Is that what we're saying here? And what seashores are we, are we talking about here? It's the Mediterranean Sea. And you can go back. In fact, it's interesting to compare what Jacob says here with the locations and the territories given to the sons of Israel that you can look at a Bible map at the back of your Bible and check. But Zebulun is told that he's going to have something to do with, he's a haven for ships, his flank toward Zidon. Now, historically, we know this, that Zebulun was a maritime merchant tribe. In fact, what's called the Via Maris, the Via Maris was the way of the sea. 
And it was a major trade route highway that ran through Israel and it went directly through the territory of Zebulun and then on down along the coast heading south. But their territory, if you look at it, again on a Bible map, you'll note it's actually inland from the sea. So they're not like right on the coast. They're separated from the shoreline of the Mediterranean by the tribe of Asher to the north and then the tribe of the half-tribe of Manasseh to the south. So you might wonder about this. Well, is this not coming true that Zebulun will dwell at the seashore? Well, no, they're, they're maritime merchants, but it's not just a locational statement that old Jacob's making. Remember, he's inspired by the spirit of Christ, Peter tells us. And as he speaks this, it is not locational, it's prophetic. Coupled with Issachar, the next son listed here, this indicates another amazing prophecy fulfilled in Israel right up to this very day. Now hold that thought and watch verse 14. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between the sheepfolds. And I love that description because again, if you look at a Bible map, guess what you see? Issachar looks like the head of a donkey, just the shape of it. And Issachar, the territory, is between Mount Tabor to the north and Mount Gilboa to the south, like a donkey lying between the sheepfolds. So it's a very graphic picture there of, of Issachar in the Jezreel Valley. Verse 15 continues, when he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. Well, that's weird. So you've got these two sons. You've got Zebulun, the beach bum, and Issachar, the slave. What's going on? Here's historically what Issachar did. When they came into the land, remember in, in Joshua, and we'll study the book of Joshua, Lord willing, but Joshua and the people of Israel come into the land and they have to take the land. God has given it to them, but they have to fight for it. And in fact, God said, I'll fight for you. You just come along. You just be willing to show up to the battle. I'll do the fighting, but you gotta be willing to take this land. And Issachar was not willing. They came into their allotted portion. It was nice. It was farmable. It was beautiful. And they didn't really feel like fighting. So they didn't drive the Canaanites out from their allotted land. They weren't up for the fight. So guess what? The Canaanites, they stick around. And eventually what happened to Issachar is they became slaves in their own territory. Brother or sister in Christ, are you a slave in your own territory? Now pause and think about this because there are far too many Christians who are slaves in what ought to be our freedom who are bound in what ought to be our resting place. We have been given a great salvation. We've been given peace in the Holy Spirit of God. But when we allow sin to remain, we become slaves of that very sin. Free, but not really free. Saved, but, but walking as if we're not. And the Apostle Paul said in Romans 6, verse 16, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience 
resulting in righteousness. Are you in your territory a slave and not experiencing the full freedom of the Spirit of God, what he has offered to us to live and to breathe and to move to know the joy of the Lord? Think about how much we give up in terms of the freedoms given to us in Jesus Christ because we will not drive out the sin. We allow it to remain. And my question to you as I have been thinking this through myself this week is which one is it gonna be? Will I fight against sin and against immorality in my life? Will I refuse to tolerate or even approve of the sin of others simply by my silence? Will I fight for righteousness and truth and the freedom that truly is mine in Christ Jesus? See, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God's faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. God told the people of Israel, Deuteronomy 3.22, do not fear them, for the Lord your God is the one fighting for you. You wanna conquer sin? All you have to do is call on the name of the Lord and he will fight for you. You don't battle back sin by being all tough and legalistic. No, you fight sin by entrusting your life to the Holy Spirit of the living God. By handing the sin over to the Father and saying, Father, fight for me. I don't want this in my life. Don't be a slave to sin when you are a son or a daughter of God. But now think about this, back to the prophecy. I said, these two together, Zebulun and Issachar, are a prophetic notion, a prophetic word here for Israel. When you take them together, they speak of, Zebulun speaks of commerce, and Issachar speaks of a strong shoulder in slavery. Together, Zebulun and Issachar exemplify Israel's exploitation. Let me be specific. From Pharaoh to Hitler, from Egypt to Auschwitz, this has played out. Like Issachar, the Jewish people have long been known to bow their shoulders to bear. That is from slavery in Egypt to slavery literally in the death camps to many different times throughout history where this people has been forced into subservience. And yet, remarkably, they have resilience, I believe a divine resilience to endure and to continue to exist. I don't know any other people that could have gone through the five years or more of the Nazi death camps and somehow come out and still survive. An amazing resilience, but it's that picture of Issachar, shoulder to the wheel, nose to the grindstone, dealing with, enduring with resilience, the slavery before them, exploited by all the world around them. And yet, and yet, (laughs) the Jew has also exploited the world. Like Zebulun, the haven for ships, the merchant marine, if you will. Zebulun, shrewd, astute, Intelligent businessmen, businesswomen, slaves, yet merchants. And so we see Zebulun and Issachar, again, exemplify Israel's exploitation. So 
Reuben exemplifies or, or indicates Israel's inception. Shimon and, and Levi, they display the dispersion of Israel. Judah, the salvation of Israel. Zebulun and Issachar, the exploitation of Israel. Continue on, verse 16. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Now, historically, understand, Dan means judge, and perhaps one of the most famous judges of Israel came right out of Dan. His name was Samson. So Samson was a Danite. Samson was a mighty, you remember the long hair? Looked like he belonged on the front of a romance novel, Samson. The, the Danite judge. And so that was the intention, was to hand that kind of authority, not ruling authority like Judah, but judging authority for the tribe of Dan. But continue, verse 17, Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. The prophecy of Dan confirms Israel's contamination. Israel's contamination. Dan was originally given territory down by Judah. In fact, the region that we know today as Tel Aviv was Dan's region. They didn't want it. They were discontent. In fact, every time we go to Israel, we go up to the far north and we go to a region called Tel Dan at the northern tip of Israel. Again, the original territory was down in the Tel Aviv region, but Dan was discontent, and so they headed to the north. And we do a teaching up there. We stop in this amazing archaeological find referred to as Tel Dan. And there at Tel Dan, we open up Judges 18, and we talk about what happened. How did Dan end up here? Rejecting their God-given territory, they head north. On the way there, they hire their own priest, who's not even of the tribe of Levi. They steal household idols, teraphim, along the way to be their special idols. And then when they get up there, they wipe out the people of Laish, who are a quiet, a peaceful, unassuming, defenseless people. Not bothering anybody, but they happen to live in the territory that Dan wanted for itself. And Dan wiped them out. And then... Dan was all in for idolatry. So when Jeroboam set up golden calves, he did one down at Bethel and then one up in Dan. A golden calf, and it was worshiped there at an altar, and you can still see the base of the altar in Tel Dan to this very day, and Dan readily received that idolatry. In fact, Dan was among the most, if not the most, idolatrous tribe of all Israel to the point that it's even omitted. You won't see the lineage of Dan given among all the genealogies in 1 Chronicles chapter 2 through chapter 10. Dan's not even listed. Jewish writings. Now, now get this, because I, I've shared this about Dan before, and I've actually been called on, and I've had someone say they felt like it was an anti-Semitic thing for me to say. I am no anti-Semite. I have a deep love for Israel and for the people of God. But note this, Jewish writings, and many rabbis themselves still teach, still believe that a false Messiah will come slithering out of the tribe of Dan. And I wonder if that false Messiah will not be Antichrist himself. We looked at this when we studied Revelation. When we noted in Revelation chapter seven, 
that 144,000 Jews are sealed from every one of the 12 tribes, 12,000 from every tribe listed, even including the tribe of Levi, but discluding Dan. Of those sealed bondservants during the tribulation period, that seven-year period where the wrath of God is poured out on the world, Dan is omitted. Dan is not sealed among those evangelists sent out into the world. Could Antichrist come out of Dan? And I don't know if that's an absolute, but what's interesting is to note that perhaps Antichrist, like Hitler, will actually have some degree of Jewish blood, Danite blood, perhaps, because of the biblical description that Dan is a serpent in the way, that he is a horned snake in the path. Could Antichrist come from Dan? And there are people who say, well, how could a Jew be Antichrist? I mean, I thought, I thought Antichrist had to come out of Rome or out of Eastern Europe. Daniel talks about that, and he does. But note something else Daniel says that I find intriguing. Daniel chapter 11, verse 37, he will show no regard for the God of his fathers. The God of his fathers is a very Jewish phrase. The God of his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. When you say the God of my fathers, that is a Jewish way of referring back to the patriarchs. And Daniel says that this Antichrist will show no regard for the God of his fathers. So I'm not saying this is absolute, but it is a strong possibility that Antichrist could come out of Dan, that the serpent in the way may be prophetic of the Antichrist himself. And this prophecy of Dan then confirms Israel's contamination. It's an upsetting thought. In fact, not only for you, for me, or for Jewish people today, it was upsetting to Jacob, even as he spoke it, because the very next thing an obviously upset Jacob does is cry out, verse 18, for your salvation I wait, O Lord. He's just described something heinous, something snake-like, and immediately says, for your salvation, I wait. This is bad. This is gonna require a savior. And I want you to note this. You're gonna see it a lot in the Hebrew scriptures. In fact, anytime you see the word salvation, Jacob says, for your salvation, I wait, O Lord. Salvation is the word Yeshua. For your Yeshua, I wait, O Lord. Apparently, Israel's horrified at the idea of this snake slithering out of Dan. So he cries out literally the name, the only name by which his people can be saved, Yeshua, for your Yeshua, your salvation, Jesus. Isaiah chapter 12, verse two, Isaiah says, behold, God is my Yeshua, my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and song. He has become my salvation, Yeshua. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of Yeshua, from the springs of salvation. What did Jesus say? He who believes in me from his innermost being, rivers of living water will flow. Drinking from the springs of salvation is to come to Jesus and be satiated. 
Matthew chapter one, verse 21. You may recall, Gabriel said to Joseph, you shall call his name Yeshua. Why? Because he's gonna save his people from their sins. Call him salvation. And Peter and John in Acts chapter four, verse 20, they say there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Think about that. They're talking to the Jewish Sanhedrin, and in that moment, they're talking about Jesus and about preaching and teaching in the name of Yeshua, and then they say, hey, there's Yeshua in no one else. If they were speaking Hebrew to the Sanhedrin, and likely they were, they used the very name to describe salvation that is the name they're told not to teach with. And then they say there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. By the way, interesting that this verse falls right after the very dark prophecy of Dan because salvation will come to Dan. Salvation, God's grace, even reaches this far as Ezekiel lists the land inheritance for each of the 12 tribes in the coming kingdom. Number one on the list, Ezekiel chapter 48, verse one, is Dan. Dan restored. Dan is part of the deal. Left out of the 144,000 sealed bondservants, and yet Dan is back for the kingdom Dan even gets his name on one of the gates of Jerusalem in the kingdom. It's marvelous. It's what we call amazing grace. Genesis 49, verse 19, continuing on now. So Dan speaks of the contamination in Israel. Verse 19, as for Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he will raid at their heels. As for Asher, his food shall be rich, literally <laughs> From Asher, his bread shall be fat. I like that, fat bread. <laughs> and he will yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. I wanna take all three of these together because note this, following this prophetic panorama, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali present Israel's persecution, provision, and proclamation in the tribulation. In that period of tribulation, that final seven years of this age that is soon to come upon the world, and thinking about Gad, it says raiders are gonna raid him, shall raid him. Literally, it's troops of warriors coming after Gad. But in the end, Gad, Israel, is gonna stand against their persecution, is gonna survive against their persecution. And then literally from Asher, his bread shall be or his food shall be rich or fat. So somehow in this tribulation, while Israel is persecuted, Israel is also rich in provision. Revelation 12, six, the woman Israel fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Nourished, taking care of her food, her provision. And in that tribulation period, think about this, while the persecution is taking place and provision is provided, Naphtali is a doe let loose. What does the let loose doe do? He gives beautiful words, proclamation. 
I submit to you that Naphtali is a prophetic picture of the 144,000 let loose in all the earth to preach the gospel, to bring proclamation of God's will. Revelation chapter seven, look it up, read it. Isaiah 52 verse seven says, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Habakkuk chapter three verse 19 says, the Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hind's feet and makes me walk on my high places so naftily as a doe let loose with beautiful words. In that time of tribulation, persecution, provision, proclamation, all prophetically indicated by these three, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. Verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. And Judah and Joseph are the only two whose prophecies are packed with blessing. We see Judah already blessed in this prophetic word spoken over the sons, but now Joseph as well, and his even more so. Remember, Joseph's uh, second-born son who takes preeminence, who takes first position, his name is Ephraim, which means fruitful. So Joseph is a fruitful bough. But what's translated bough here, it's interesting they choose that translation, because literally, bow is bene, a fruitful son. Bene, son, a fruitful son by a spring, branches run over a wall. So Jacob begins by calling him the son of a fruitful tree. That would be another way to translate this. Joseph is the son of a fruitful tree by a fountain with branches that run over a wall. So continually watered by springs, by a fountain, the water flows, a tree planted beside streams of water. The Bible uses that reference in Psalm 1 and in Jeremiah as well. Continually watered and also with branches that spread over the wall. So beyond the wall of the garden cannot be contained. Branches spreading out in beautiful fruitfulness, jot this down, note this, Joseph reveals Israel's restoration. Beauty of Israel as a garden once again, spreading out with springs of water. But watch this, it's not an easy ride to get there. Verse 23, the archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him but his bow remained firm and his arms were agile. Now, pause for just a moment, note this. The archers, Joseph's brothers, they're the ones who attacked him. Uh, Potiphar's wife would be in that group who attack him. He suffered much on the road from his being a son, a fruitful son, to experiencing his true fruitfulness in Egypt. So historically, we see this played out even before this. His bow and his arms, so the archers attack him, his brothers and those set against him. His bow and his arms, however, are firm and agile, which speaks of Joseph's blamelessness, his integrity, that he remained, remained true and firm. But Jacob notes that this firm, agile strength and this integrity, it really wasn't Joseph after all. Keep reading in verse 20. 
3, 24, from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Now get this. He's not saying Joseph is the shepherd of Israel or the stone of Israel. There's only one. He's not saying that Israel's blamelessness and strong arms and agility will save the Jew. He's talking about Messiah here. The one perfect, blameless Jew, Jesus. And just as he is the source of Joseph's integrity, Jesus is also the source of Israel's restoration. Romans eleven twenty six. So all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. That's out of Isaiah 59, verse 20, by the way. And Isaiah 45, verse 17 reads, Israel has been saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity. It was the integrity. It was the blamelessness of the perfect Jew, Jesus, that strengthened Joseph in his day, but brings about Israel's beautiful restoration in their day. Verse 25, from the God of your father who helps you, and by the almighty Shaddai who blesses you, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessing of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound or limit of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Man, Jacob pours it on. Blessing over his son Joseph. Jacob still absolutely adores this, this boy, now this man. He blesses his socks off. But there's one son to go. Verse 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, in the evening he divides the spoil. Now there's some historicity to this. Benny was a rough and ravenous tribe, truly. I'm gonna give you several examples. I'll just give you a couple here, or maybe three. Israel's judge by the name of Ehud was a Benjamite, a left-handed Benjamite who one afternoon left the sword, uh, his sword in the belly of the Moabite king Eglon. That's a great story. Pulls out his sword in his left hand and drives it in. It tells us the handle goes in and the flesh closed over it. <laughs> And Eglon went down. Eglon was a huge man. They say his coffin was the size of a piano case, but we'll get there. That's, that's in Judges. Lord willing, we'll see that pretty disgusting story. But Ehud was a Benjamite, rough and ragged. Of course, Israel's first king, the people's choice, was Saul, who was also a Benjamite. And you may recall one of the most ravenous persecutors of the early church was a Benjamite by the name of Saul who became Paul, who ultimately wrote Philippians chapter four, verse four, rejoice in the Lord always and again I will say rejoice. This guy went from ravaging the church to rejoicing in the Lord, from being a ravenous wolf to a rejoicing servant. 
And it's a beautiful picture in Paul's life. He says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near, Philippians 4, 5. So what is it that Benjamin portrays? Even as Joseph reveals Israel's restoration, Benjamin cites Israel's celebration. Celebration. Where do you get that? Note the verse again. In the morning he devours the prey, in the evening he divides the spoil, and the language is reminiscent of of celebration. Delich writes, morning and evening together suggest the idea of incessant and victorious capture of spoils. And the Lord says, Isaiah chapter 65, just listen to this. I will bring forth forth offspring from Jacob and an heir of my mountains from Judah. Even my chosen ones shall inherit it and my servants will dwell there. Sharon will be a pasture land for flocks and the valley of Accor a resting place for herds for my people who seek me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune, who fill cups with mixed wine for destiny, I will, dis- will destine you for the sword and all of you will bow down to the slaughter because I called and you did not answer. I spoke and you did not hear and you did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. But listen, therefore thus says the Lord, and he gives amazing contrast between the servant of the Lord and those who stand in rebellion. He says, my servants will eat, but you will be hungry. My servants will drink, you will be thirsty. My servants will rejoice, you will be put to shame. My servants will shout joyfully with a glad heart, you will cry out with a heavy heart, and your wall and you will wail with a broken spirit. You will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones, and the Lord God will slay you. But my servants will be called by another name, because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth, and he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, because they are hidden from my sight. The servant celebrates. He is close to the Lord. You might even say he is the son of his right hand. Benjamin, son of my right hand, to be at the right hand of the Father, to be near to the Lord. And a great feast is coming for the servant of the Lord. Genesis 49, verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. And he blessed them, note this, everyone with the blessing appropriate to him. And then he charged them. And he said to them, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, and there I buried Leah. So fascinating to me. It's so beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel, but here at the end, Jacob honors Leah. He is laid to rest beside her in the cave of Machpelah. And as I said on Sunday, when this prophecy is finished, 
this age will be finished. I'm talking about the whole panorama, Israel from beginning to end of days. When this prophecy comes to fruition, this current age is over. And the question I asked Sunday, I ask you again tonight to keep considering when that happens, where will you be gathered? Now, before we go, one last thing. Note the processional to the burial in chapter 50. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph weeps quite a few times, and we're gonna talk about that on Sunday. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father, and so the physicians embalmed Israel, which was a high honor for a Jew to be embalmed in Egypt, a high honor. Now, 40 days were required for it, that is, for the Egyptian embalming, for such is the period required for embalming, and the Egyptians wept for him for 70 days. So this period of mourning went on and on over this man, Jacob, because he was father of Joseph, who truly was, as it were, a a savior of the world at that time. When the days of mourning for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, if now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh, saying, my father made me swear, saying, behold, I'm about to die in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and then I will return. Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt and all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household. They left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. There also went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation, and he observed seven days mourning for his father, Now, when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians, and therefore it was named Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. Abel or Abel Mizraim literally means either the meadow of Egypt or the mourning of Egypt. And it is remarkable. Egypt is a picture of the world. Think about the mourning here that takes place. This mourning over this Jew. And there is coming a day when the world will mourn over a Jew. And his name is Jesus. And they will see him in his coming and they will weep. Israel will weep for him as weeping for an only son. But the world will mourn when they see him return and thus his sons did for him verse 12 as he had charged them for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephron the Hittite and we're going to stop there and pick up the end of it on Sunday but you know Joseph knew that Egypt would never be home for Israel 
Neither the man nor the people. Oh, they may sojourn there. They may even be enslaved there for a time, but the land of promise was their home. And Joseph knew the way there. And so this grand and glorious procession comes up from Egypt right up into the promised land so that Jacob could be buried there. Joseph knew the way, and the way wasn't far. Let me end with this. What if we don't regather as a larger church fellowship? What do you mean? You're not gonna open? No, I'm not saying I'm not gonna open the doors. I'm asking a question, rhetorical. What if we don't get to regather as a larger church fellowship in this age? What if more unexpected birth pangs hit? What if more takes place next month or the month after that? We don't know. Nobody saw this coming. Nobody saw this bizarre season before us as we celebrated the end of 2019, going into 2020, looking forward to 2020. Nobody saw this. We don't know what is around the bend. What if we don't regather outside of Egypt? before this age is over. You see, Jacob died in Egypt and was carried home. My question to you tonight is not one of despair and it's not one of warning, hey, we may never open the doors of the church again. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is, what if our next gathering is in the clouds? Do you know the way home? Jesus said, if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also and you know the way where I am going. But Thomas, like so many people, said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. So whether you draw your feet up into the bed in this Egypt or you lose your shoes being caught up to heaven, Jesus is the way home. And you know what? The gathering that he longs for isn't here. It's there. Will you be gathered to him? Oh, Lord Jesus, gather us to yourself. I pray, Lord, use this season as you have in so many lives so far. People talking about the end right now, Lord, like never before, it's really quite stirring. Eyes being opened, people being literally awakened to the reality of this earth in which we live and the truth of your word, Lord, it is going out all over the place. Lord, it's remarkable how you have used this already. And Lord, I pray that we would not miss at all what you're doing. Because Jesus, the way home doesn't pass through the halls of a church building, it passes through you. And I ask that you will call us to yourself, our attention to yourself, our eyes wide open to your great desire, which as we said earlier, Lord, you have desired this since day one of planet Earth. You have directed us to yourself and to your kingdom and to your presence from the very beginning. That's what this is all about, I believe, Lord. So may we not miss what you're doing. May we hear what you're saying, the words of our Father God. May we 
like the Shema, hear and Lord, obey. We love you. We're thankful for your words, for the prophecies shown to us tonight. And we simply ask, Lord, one way or the other, be our way home. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.